Welcome, bienvenidos to La Cura Podcast, decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. This podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Mi Gente is a political home of Latinx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-queer, pro-migrant, pro-poor, because our community is all that and more. Resilient Strategies is a healing justice project transforming the impact of state violence on our bodies and the collective as a critical part of liberation. Welcome to La Cura, everybody. Um, good to have you. I am here with Delia Mayeno Saavedra, and she had a really great conversation with us this past episode on conflict and transformation. And as promised, at the end of the last episode, uh, we are having a part two for a couple of reasons. One is because there were three questions, four questions, several questions. We'll probably get to a few and not all of them that came up in Louisville, Kentucky at the Mi Gente gathering back in October where we did our episode live. And we wanted to make sure that we get to them. And the second thing is that we felt that the last conversation was somewhat incomplete. There's a couple more things that I would love to kind of dig in um, with Belia about regarding conflict, um, specifically around shame and around accountability. So I'm excited to have you back, Belia. Thank you so much for having me. And I was thinking like on a mm-hmm. meta level about how good of a practice opportunity this has been in terms of a skills set that's relevant to conflict. Because, you know, it's like uh, I was re-listening to the recording and there was so much in me that was like, oh, you said it weird or like you shouldn't have said it like that or someone's going to come for you because won't, won't, won't. And like I realized like, yo, the work in conflict and in <laughs> podcasts apparently <laughs> is like to say your shit and then I get to be like curious about what the response is and I get to care mm-hmm. or I get to hella care. But I don't get to control how it's being received. And so that is a lifelong practice invitation. So I just have been thinking about how interesting it is, like, even in this conversation, the like little urge of like, man, I wish I would have said it differently, or I wish I could make sure that it would be received in Mm -hmm. exactly the way that I meant it. And then there was a little smaller voice that hopefully is growing inside my own heart or spirit that's like, yeah, and that's like not actually the way that it works in communication and conflict. So thank you for the practice (laughs) opportunity. But yeah, that's good. That's a good reminder that like we say things the way we say them. And then, um, you know, that's the magic of communication and then also the messiness of it. Right. Thank you. Thanks for that reflection. I wanted to go in and um, kind of pick up where we left off around a couple of things. The last conversation, so helpful in terms of reminding us about the role that Christianity has played in our lives and how we end up 
uh, choosing a good and an evil. Most of the time we're good. Everybody else is evil when dealing intention. Um, also reminding us about the importance of vulnerability, leaning into that. I wanted to ask you the thing around shame and you named it a bit last time we talked and I wanted to come back to that or delve back into that around the role that shame plays in two ways. One is how we relate to, to conflict and how we relate when we have maybe we have maybe done something that we shouldn't have done or said something we shouldn't have done. Or sometimes we shame the other person in the process of, you know, of, of trying to, to disconnect, to build connection. Uh, one of the really powerful tools, in my opinion, at least in mm. coming up in my family with very toxic dynamics has been, how do you shame the person into some level of compassion for you, love or seeing you? And that never works out <laughs> in my opinion that actually creates resentment and so hmm. I was curious to hear a little bit more about how you see the role of shame so shame there's lots to say about it I think uh one thing that I, I don't remember if I mentioned last time but like this idea of like that shame is a really quick kind of even sometimes subconscious like mechanism to close up really fast I think I was talking about like the sea anemone yeah. or something on the rock and so sometimes like shame um serves a purpose in a weird way although it's very hard to experience that kind of like gets us to like retract or contract like really quickly um in order to get ourselves out of a space that feels like overly vulnerable or scary or something in that type of way um so i can appreciate the function that it serves in that way and um what I think that is like really, really hard about it at the same time is hmm. it's hella lonely. Like it feels really, really super isolating. And it tends to come with, again, this messaging around like, it's not only that you did something wrong, it's like that you are wrong. Or it's not only that I did something wrong, it's that I am wrong, like fundamentally. And it becomes like mushed up with our identity in a way that I think can mm. be really dangerous um, or hurtful. Does that distinction make sense? Like it's not um, – I get like why it exists and it does accomplish kind of like a clamming up really quickly, like even from a somatic perspective, like shame really can cause literal contractions in the places in our body where we have a big tendency to kind of armor in our systems. And the thing that goes along with it in terms of the narrative that is really painful is like, and you're wrong or you're bad or we're wrong or we're bad as a community, like the way that people can carry a collective shame as well. Um and it's really, really hard to stay in that narrative and it's hella lonely, like I said, right? So a lot of times I saw this diagram one time of this like compass of shame that because it's hard to be in that by ourselves with that like really terribly isolating and potentially like poisonous narrative of I'm bad um, or wrong fundamentally, that people tend to um, 
often kind of try to move away from that in different ways. And that's where the shame compass comes in. You could totally Google it. There's lots of uh, different examples and illustrations of it, but it becomes then people's often the move that they might make in response to that is to like attack someone else, like turn the tables, like, no, you're wrong and bad. It's not me. You're the wrong and bad one. Um, It could be like withdrawal and just like shutting down. In um, the the somatic frame or the way I've seen it taught inside of um, courses that are looking at the role of shame healing inside of trauma healing is that if we can kind of bounce back and forth inside of all the things that are wrong about us, then it protects us in some ways from having to reckon with these things that are massively wrong with the world or mm-hmm. with the places that we come from or the ways that struck, you know, the societies or institutions we exist inside that we don't have as much immediate control over. Right. right. Um, and it's really hard to be in that. So sometimes the issue is that then we're like, okay, well, it's hella hard to be in the literal experience of shame. Like for me, it shows up, like it makes me feel really nauseous or sometimes like I have to like poop. Like, you know, like there's ways that your body is really trying to right. um, like get us out of that or process that in a way that can feel really hard. And so sometimes people make the move in that to then be like, well, I can't be with this for too long. So actually, I'm going to make you be the receptacle of the shame and you're actually mm-hmm. the wrong or bad or unworthy which kind of touches back to what I talked about a little bit in our last conversation, which is like right. the the liberatory possibilities of what can happen when we don't need to make anybody bad or wrong or shameful or disgusting or all these tapes that kind of constantly play in our heads. But like I do, again, in terms of the function of shame, it's really like an indicator of like pointing to, I was just looking up how they articulated it in some of the somatics literature I've seen from generative somatics is like it shows up after a like break in our integrity and worth um, that can be intimate or all the way to the systemic. So it's really pointing to something very, very profound. And what I found uh, to be really helpful as like a it's it doesn't solve everything. There's huge processes that people go through in order to heal shame. But one thing that I found like on a day-to-day basis that's been really helpful is that when my body starts like indicating to me like you're I'm in a shame place, instead of trying to immediately like squish that down or have a drink or act out on somebody else so that they have to feel shame, like just even slowing down and being like saying out loud to myself or to my little dog, like, I feel shame right now. And I don't uh-huh. narrate it any other way. I just like name it. And it it almost immediately like, like by being with it and not trying to do anything about it or fight it. Um, it feels like it gives credit to what it's trying to take care of and has a little bit of a potential intervention moment for me to not react out of it in a way that could potentially cause other people or myself further harm. Mm-hmm. It also, like you said right now, that's a good reminder about how it's important to honor the function that shame has in terms of path to creating safety and to creating agency and to, um, you know, some level of self-determination and also to observe it and to know that that's not, there is a function to it and that um, kind of on the path to 
regulating, I guess, your your nervous system the path to healing in some way, and that it isn't something obviously mm. that um, is meant to stay, and it's something that was we're meant to observe in this process, acknowledge, and also allow to, you know, allow it to kind of um, pass by uh, or pass through. Uh, in order for us to move to the sort of next step in our um, self-awareness, in our uh, healing, and even in the mm-hmm. conflicts that we might be in, right? It's like, okay, I feel shame. And then mm-hmm. let's see what, let me observe what comes next after this, right? Or yeah. maybe sometimes yeah. like right after the shame moment comes out the moment of realization around um, what we're supposed to do next, <laughs> Um, versus yielding it as a weapon sometimes against ourselves mm-hmm. or others, which I definitely have seen. Totally serves a function and the function that it serves is powerful and also limited and creates other possibilities for further harm. So like what else is there? And it, I think it's like that that practice of like noticing what our particular flavor of shame might be. Um, and then also what we tend to do with it. So one of the very strange, not very strange, but kind of um, intense or deep, or I don't know how to call it. Um, calling cards of shame for me sometimes is when I'm really feeling like extreme mm-hmm. shame, I get the urge, like the physical, strong embodied urge to like grab a pair of scissors and like grab chunks of my hair and violently cut my hair off. And I, I don't know why that is. Mm. That's never happened to me. I have some questions in terms yeah. of like me as an indigenous descended person, how that might also be my body, like expressing some ancestral shame and trauma about being indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but what I do know for sure is that when I get that urge, I'm like, yo, like it's time to name this and be with it for a second before I do anything else. Because I know we were also in a commitment to talk about accountability in this conversation that if I don't do yeah. that, I'm way more likely to make a move that then requires me to have to do a whole bunch of accountability and cleaning up afterwards because I was making choices from a place of shame. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, like it's like the work mm-hmm. of building and I love, you know, the somatics frame inside of this where it's like the work of building awareness, um, of like how that happens inside of us. And then what else is there in response to that, that we can do and not shitting on ourselves for having that initial urge or for making that move. But then what else? It's not like you shared with us, like what? shame looks like or feels like sometimes or the urges that come up it's like what are the urges that come up for mm-hmm. for folks for you for anyone when shame is actually really mm-hmm. present in our bodies it made me start thinking about what are the things that i what are the urges that i have when i have shame and what does it make me want to do and obviously sometimes i definitely have mm-hmm. acted on them <laughs> one that's really present right now is like um leaving my baby in anyone's care and mm. I just I have so much shame around it and this weekend I want to go see Aunt, uh, a tia who's very sick um and I'm going to a place where it snows literally six hours away from here and I wanted my partner to keep the baby and I just have all of this stuff just washing over me and it's not it's not quite guilt it's deeper than that I'm like well I shouldn't go 
well, maybe I should take the baby, but then it's snowing, it's too much. And just literally continuously, um, you know, not really doing what I want to do because I have so much shame around not being a good mom and, you know, being um, neglectful, I guess, quote unquote, which is not true at all. Um, and the urge is just like, oh, let me just completely ignore my needs because, or my desire to go see my tia who's really, really, really sick, who I might not see uh, in the future if I don't go see her right now. But that shame piece is, is really serious um, for all of us. And then also I think that sometimes we're just literally in shame ongoingly. Mm -hmm. So there's like when we're in conflict, shame comes up and how do we see it in our bodies? How do we react to it? Um, what does it make us want to do? And then other times it's like, sometimes you can literally have a whole lifetime living in shame. Do you feel like folks that often experience the most shame also yielded against others in some way? Because I know that I have experienced, I've been in relationships with mentors that were not very healthy, that I felt like in conflict or in disagreement, what their their way of operating was you shame and it wasn't quite humiliation but it was definitely shaming like shame on you type thing as a way of teaching someone a lesson and it was awful mm. it was absolutely debilitating I often wonder like is it you that just lives with so much shame around your own stuff that then you use it against others? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that for some folks, the externalizing shame uh, can become a, or weaponizing it towards other people can become a move, especially if that is something that um, we've gotten a lot of practice in, weaponizing against ourselves. And for other people, that's not a move that they would ever make. Um, so, or it's a move that they would rarely make. There's a um, a little illustration of this thing called the shame compass that I've, I don't always find hell helpful for everything, but I think that it's like a good, uh, representation of like in the middle is shame. And then there's these directions that we kind of take to get out of it. And so one of the directions is to act, attack other people when we're feeling shame, but then some folks withdraw and get really isolated. Other people get really into denial or avoidance or, um, getting super like obliteratedly drunk so we don't have to feel that shame. And then other people double down on how mm. we attack ourselves. So I think like there's lots of different responses people can come up with if they feel a lot of shame for them in themselves. There's also like, I think ways that uh, like gender and, and race and power and class privilege and all those things can play into that, that it's like actually potentially more acceptable for somebody to weaponize shame against others because of the structural power they have associated with their identity. And then maybe for some of the, another group of us, like we wouldn't ever be allowed to do that because that's like um, too angry or too hood rat or whatever. Like, it, does that make sense? Like there's lots of different ways that people like are allowed to respond to shame in different ways, depending on what their identities are and how those identities mm -hmm. are associated with situational power or privilege inside of these deeply poisonous uh, systems that we're surviving inside of. And sometimes as organizers, we're like, we want the system to feel shame. We want these elected officials to feel shame about what they're doing and in the deepest way. And because of that imbalance of power in some ways, and because we sometimes mix, which we'll go into right now, like the question of accountability and shame 
uh, sometimes people default to shame because they feel like some over accountability in conflict or um, intention. And so there's the piece around needing to ensure we meet our inherent needs and using conflicting strategies, which I think is something that felt really clear based on our last conversation. And then also, um, you know, what are some ways in which we can observe what comes up in our bodies and ensure that we stay connected in the process and in relationship and um, especially observing shame and also leaning into vulnerability. How do we also ensure that we remain accountable, I guess, accountable to ourselves, I guess, and our own needs. But once there's been an exchange where um, conflict has arisen and maybe we didn't deal it, deal with it in the best way, mm-hmm. um, how, you know, how do we, tend to then some level of accountability if the self-awareness came much later, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe not in the moment. Yeah. So first, I think it's helpful to draw some distinctions around what accountability is or isn't, right? I'm very clear Mm -hmm. for myself um, that accountability is not punishment as but our suffering for suffering's sake. And I arrive at that like from a political perspective, given how certain bodies and identities are like really targeted for punishment over and over again under anti-blackness and white supremacy yeah. and um ableism and all of these again like larger forces that we're surviving inside of and living inside of. But also like from a pragmatic perspective, Lots of punishment doesn't necessarily lead to more accountability in what I've seen um, in folks Mm -hmm. that I care about and including in myself that the more people get punished um, every now and then they might become more accountable, but lots of times they just get way more skilled at avoiding accountability or way more skilled at being (laughs) over accountable for things that maybe they didn't cause. So like from a pragmatic Mm -hmm. perspective as well, like punishment doesn't necessarily get us there to accountability. And really what Mm -hmm. I feel like, and this is not like a super articulated definition, but for myself, like I feel like accountability for me feels like that really bone deep spiritual responsibility to honoring of relationships, right? Which includes, because it's a relational Mm. perspective, like it includes being with the um, humanity and worth of everyone involved, including the people who potentially cause the harm, right? Um, One of the the things that I've read one time, somebody was describing a a Quaker marriage ceremony. And there's a point in the, Mm -hmm. the marriage ceremony where people... Uh, stand up and they offer kind of what they've been spiritually moved to say, like they offer kind of advice or just things for the people who are getting married to take with them out of the ceremony. And one of the um, Quaker Mm -hmm. elders in this particular ceremony said, the best question to ask yourself in partnership um, is what is love asking of me today? And I just felt so moved by that as like what a uh, question of accountability could be and that what love might be asking of us today might be recognize some bullshit ass harm that you caused (laughs) or a thing that you said that you didn't (laughs) intend to do, but that you did, but that love is compelling Mm -hmm. you, not fear of punishment, right? 
or another like spiritual mm-hmm. perspective of like, you know, for me and you and our, our worldview that we're practicing inside of as people who um, are, you know, in Lukumi or in Ifa, this, the principle of Ache or Ache, like if we've been imbued, our yeah. Ori, our like destinies and our life has been imbued with Ache, like how am I using that? And so I feel like there's something about the spiritual mm-hmm. responsibility connected with accountability that I just wanted yeah. to name that it's not just like a formula of like, this is how you fix things when you've done something wrong. Um, and I think a lot about right. like, maybe this is a weird <laughs> metaphor, but like, let's say I, I didn't learn how to <laughs> drive until I was like 22 years old. I was like terrified of cars, right? And um, mm-hmm. I would always have nightmares about driving out of control cars. I don't know what that speaks to my trauma, but that's I was afraid of cars. <laughs> and so <laughs> let's say I then get some keys to a car and I get behind the wheel and then I plow through somebody's living room or I like hit a really old tree mm-hmm. and kill it. Right. Um, I'm trying to use like less right. violent harm that I could cause uh, to uh humans in this metaphor so people don't get too freaked out but like if i do that like i yes i didn't know how to drive right but also i got behind the wheel and i did use my power as a driver of a car in a way that created an impact to somebody else's home or to this tree that has been holding all this life and giving us all this air and being with us on this land for potentially hundreds of years right so it's like Right. It's not it's not just like, oh, I didn't know how to drive and that sucked and like I was afraid of driving, but it's also like what is the impact that you literally cause with the car or with your personal power or with whatever that does need to be reckoned with? Like how do we then be with that in the form of potentially apology if that feels relevant and necessary, but also like the understanding the impact of what we did. I love that um Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective has like a apology lab where they teach people how to make good apologies. And it includes often apologizing, Ooh. right? Um, sometimes people don't want to be apologized to, though. Mm-hmm. But uh, definitely it includes understanding huh. the impact of the actions, like witnessing actually what that was for another life or another group of folks, um, making amends and like putting yeah. things as right as possible. Do I need to plant a new tree potentially? Or like, do I need to help you or figure mm-hmm. out how to rebuild the home that I destroyed with this um, car metaphor? Um, but most importantly, yeah. like changing the behavior, like committing that until I right. motherfucking learn how to drive, <laughs> I'm not going to get behind the wheel of a car again. <laughs> like, um, and like, That's important. yeah. So like, it's not only do you replant the tree, do you fix the home? I don't want to stretch this metaphor too far, but it's also, do you make the decision yeah. and commitment not to do that again and not to risk uh, life right. and connection in that way uh, until you're actually able to do it in a like way that is more honoring or more cognizant of safety or whatever, right? Or of, or of the potential power that we have to wield in that situation. So um, there's lots of really amazing transformative justice 
leaders and thinkers who are um, really articulating how to take accountability well. And it's not something that I tend to think that we usually can do all that well without support, especially if it's a big harm. But even in like little conflicts, it's really meaningful to have somebody that we trust. We need people to hold up the mirror with love and be like, I want to reflect back to you the best possibility of who you came to earth to be and taking accountability as a part of that. So how can I support you in doing that um, so that that reflection can continue to be real? For those of us that have enough self-awareness to say, I messed up, which honestly, more and more I see less and less people recognize that they made a mistake in conflict or in communication or in, you know, people using, again, the conflicting strategies piece. I said something that was hurtful. And this is more on like the more like medium level, low level sort of, you know, harm. Um, Whereas folks, I've seen so much lately of like just straight up kind of ghosting on something, you know, and not wanting to face either the conversation or acknowledge, yes, I messed up. Um, Let's talk about it. Or apologies are actually not, in my experience, definitely, I would say in movement work, a thing that happens mm. much. And I see it less and less as a practice, and it's kind of alarming mm. to me. And I don't fully know if it's because people aren't acknowledging that they might have, you know, caused hurt or, um, you know, there was some sort of miscommunication or people are not sort of hearing each other. But many times it's pretty explicit what they did and that was not okay and it was named and they don't kind of return for the conversation or to say I disagree or they are or it's named to them like this is actually what's needed Um, and they just can't seem to acknowledge um, any of it whether even to say I disagree and so there I think there is an art to an apology. And I, I'm totally curious to look into the collective you named and the work that they're doing because it sounds amazing and it feels like it's an actual something that we need to teach each other and le- all of us learn collectively because it apologies really mm-hmm. matter, you know? And I think like what you're pointing to about like the over under accountability that like that goes with the apology piece for sure about like some of us get really good at never having to say we're sorry. And some of us get really good at saying sorry for everything, including the very fact of our existence. Right. So like being able to hold that. um yep. And be, and I think that goes back to what we talked about in the last conversation about like, what if somebody's worth or value is like, that's, we're just going to assume that that's true. Like all of our worth and value is inherent in this conversation that then it becomes easier to kind Mm. of hold apologies for the size that they are, which is like, I did a thing and it impacted you in the following ways. And I, I regret that, or I'm sorry. And I would like to do something about it to put things more right. Right. But I didn't have to be bad or a shit person in order for me to say that. And I think a lot of the avoidance stuff comes yeah. from a place of people conflating the two. That if you say that you did something wrong, it means you are wrong. 
like fundamentally, like in your soul, you're wrong as a person. Mm, And Mm -hmm. that's just like, I'm so curious about the ways that we can continue to hold each other that it's like, no, that's, we're not, that's not even a part of this conversation. You're not wrong in the, in the fact of your existence. And this thing that you did, did hurt me. And we have to be with that and reckon with that so Mm -hmm. that we can continue to have trust and build more power. Right. Um, so, and right. I think there's like a technology thing too, that like the, all that gets mushed up in there that I don't even know if we don't have enough time for, but like <laughs> one in the age of like kind of ghosting, like it's actually the, that we're more and more removed from each other. Like it becomes easier to avoid each other because we don't see each other like in the freaking, mm-hmm. um, you know, the socalo <laughs> that we have to confront each other in the same way. Like it becomes easier to like, and the yeah, like you don't see like, um, there, there's ways to avoid each other as, as we've become more removed and yet more connected that it like, it's easy to be like, Oh, I'm just never going to answer your texts. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna block you so that I don't have to reckon with that thing, which would be maybe potentially sometimes harder to do right. if we were all living like in the same super small, like Pueblo where we had to figure it out maybe. Um, And then I think also the ways that conflict can get like amplified through the use of technology or like public shaming in a way that's like not necessarily always helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's just like all these things like that we've humans have created um, that then I think we use as tools to further express our contradictions and ambivalence around reckoning with our own shame. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think to kind of wrap this this part up, you just reminded us of the one of the most important things, which somebody sent me a message about the previous conversation we had and I and their big takeaway was what if you we if we engaged in conflict and our worth was not a question, mm-hmm. either that person's worth or, or our own worth. And mm-hmm. that I think is even just that being something that transforms in the way that we engage in conflict it is really powerful it can really shift a lot um if we both feel and believe that we're worthy and we're not the thing that's happening or the thing that we might have done or somebody else has done and so that's very significant so figure that out and it'll be good (laughs) we've solved shame on lacuna podcast Um, yay (laughs) that's the other thing i wanted to move into there were some questions in louisville that came up around just some basic practice um Folks had questions uh, from the audience. We had an audience of about 150 people um, at the Mijente Gathering who had some questions around some of the conflicts they're navigating. One of the questions is, how do we set boundaries with family because of homophobia and transphobia slash racism, et cetera, and still remain connected Mm, with them? That is such an important question. And I really appreciate it because I think it speaks to this thing of like, folks in my family are causing a harm and I still desire this connection, kind of what we just came out of talking about. So first, I want to just flag that, you know, sometimes we can't set boundaries like literally it's too dangerous or it's too risky um so i don't i want to just name that just for folks who are listening where they're in situations where they can't set a boundary because of this super pressing danger or risk that's attached to it um 
that folks like just inviting people away from shame, if that's the situation that we're in. Um, and I'm thinking like, uh, like for an example, like for folks who are disabled and rely on a caretaker, that that's really their main source of care. Um, and they can't set a boundary with that person, um, without risking their access to care. Um, that's hella real. And it's a, it's a, a condition that, disabled folks are living inside of and that disability justice movements really are trying to be like, what other ways can disabled folks access care so that they don't have to sacrifice dignity or safety in order to get that um, or belonging. So I just want to name that. um, But I'm assuming Mm -hmm. for the purposes of this question that since they exit, that it is a possibility. Um, So when I I was thinking through this question, it actually made me harken back to when I used to do sex education as rape prevention. And there was an exercise that we did that um, borrowed really heavily from sex workers that I've always thought was like incredible when it came to boundaries. And I'm not saying at all that sexual harm is the same as conflict, but I do want to like honor how much great work that sex workers and anti-sexual violence movements have done to articulate boundaries um, and how mm. we can continue to learn from that, even in contexts yes. that aren't specific to those um, scenarios. Um, so in this activity for the um, original version, it's basically like yes, no's, and maybes. So we brainstorm together, we think of on our own, all of the sexual acts we can come up with from holding hands to, uh, you know, the, you know, super freaky jump off stuff. That's very exciting, right? <laughs> Wherever you want to land, it's I don't want to, you know, yeah. like uh, project what that means for people, but like, right. yeah, it could be, it's Limit like anyone. anything, right? <laughs> and so it's all these things that we can come up with like collectively mm-hmm. or individually of like all the possibilities that could happen inside of sex acts or romantic sexual touch. And so after you come up with that list, then you mm-hmm. um, do some reflection and including like really feeling for in your body, what feels like your response to the items on that list. So I might be like, oh, like when I think of or feel for in my own system, holding hands. Yes, I want to do that with this person. Um, when I think of, you know, maybe mm-hmm. like. I don't know, a different sex act, like, um, I'm trying to think of something, like, I'm, I maybe want to have sex with them, but maybe I don't. And maybe, like, I'm not sure about that one, right? And then I definitely don't want to be right. little spoon in a spooning situation, because I do a lot of sleep farting, and I just, that's on my no list, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so like we're going through and it's, yes, very important. Very so important. basically we're going through and thinking through like, what am I feeling called for in my body for a yes? What's a maybe that I want to continue to be kind of checking in on? And what's a definitely a no, right? Um, and the, the reason why we used it in that scenario mm-hmm. is because people still want to have sex and sexually engage with each other. And it's really helpful to have a sense going into it, what you're down for or not down for so that you don't have to, um, navigate how to say no to those things or set boundaries or ask questions for your maybes in a like kind of high stakes, super horny potential opportunities for people to put a lot of pressure on each other's situation. So to know and have a little clarity on that beforehand actually can uh, reduce the, the possibility sometimes for harm 
for miscommunication um, or violations of consent, mm-hmm. if we're already sort of clear, if this comes up, this is how I'm going to let them know. And this is what I'm going to be asking for. Right. So yeah. I, I think about that in terms mm-hmm. of also family scenarios. So let's say, so we're taking it out of that realm and moving it towards, yeah. if I'm going to go spend a bunch of time in my family or in my community, mm-hmm. what are things that might happen? in those interactions. Maybe we are making tamales with our grandma. Maybe we're watching TV together. Maybe um, people uh, have a lot of alcohol. Like maybe we play the domino. Like we don't really know, right? But we kind of brainstorm a bunch of different things. Oh, a conversation about politics or somebody might say something homophobic or transphobic or anti-Black, like all those things, like things that can happen in these scenarios. And then thinking through, mm-hmm. here's what I feel available for or compelled to as a yes. Yes, I want to make tamales with my grandma. No, I actually don't want to drink with you. Maybe I might have one, but how am I going to let you know that actually I'm really only available to have one and then I'm done after that because that's what I know my limit is, right? Getting clarity around like the yeses, the nos, and the maybes in these situations too. And then doing some thinking or some strategizing on our own or hopefully potentially with other supportive people like, and how am I going to let people know what I am available for or not available for? Like I, in my own experience, when, uh, you know, my dad would sometimes say like femphobic or homophobic things, like I was like, Hey, I'm down for this kind of way of conversating or this type of way of spending time together. But I'm going to tell you right now, like when you talk like that next time and right now, I'm going to get off the phone because I'm not available. I'm not down or I can't to have that conversation with you. Um, I I can do this. I can maybe do that. Mm. But I have some questions associated with that. And so like really talking that through and like letting them know, here are my no's. And when I say no, if that's not honored, like this is the action I'm going to have to take. It doesn't mean I think you're bad or wrong, or I don't love you, or I don't fuck with you no more, or blah, 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 blah. But I'm just letting you know what I can and can't do. And that was yeah. so transformative with my relationship with my dad, mm-hmm. because I set hard no's about like, I don't want to spend time with you when you're drunk. Or I don't want to, you know, when you talk this way about this group of people, I have to stop. But I am down to try again for another conversation. My yes to a conversation to talking back with you next Saturday when you're sober about A, B, and C that doesn't include homophobia. I am down for that. Do you want to do that? And so I feel like over time, it kind of helped him get clear on like what things were allowable inside of our relationship or not. And it also still gave opportunities for further connection because I did keep saying, but I am available for one, one, one. And so it didn't feel to him like I was saying, you are unworthy to be my dad or I don't fuck with you. Now, I might have arrived eventually at I don't fuck with you and people do get there and that is a valid choice. But in this particular case, it was like a way to practice um, attending to the connection and also attending to my own dignity and boundaries as a queer person. Is it important to do this um, and not expect that person to change their behavior, but it's more about you doing it or us doing it to ensure, again, we honor our dignity, we honor um, who we are and what we feel and we think um, in our own boundaries versus doing it 
and all of that, but also expecting some sort of evolution in the person given your boundaries that you have set, because I assume that could happen that they evolved and change and realize, oh, I can't be talking about that around Belair doing that. But um, there could also be times where that doesn't happen, but then you're still Yeah, and I think that that's so helpful to name because I think like the expectation that I would change his mind was would have been a pretty heavy weight to put on initially, right? And over time, we continued to build trust where we could enter in conversations, especially as I got older, where I was like, hey, I feel equipped to have a conversation with him where I could be like, this is how I feel when you say that stuff. Here's why I think it's wrong. Here's why it doesn't make sense to me here, whatever, you know, like the, the, the harder conversations of trying to change his mind. But initially, the, the ground that I could cover um, and that I think was a good basis was just like, I'm going to tell you first what my no's are or what my limitations are. And that's it. Like, there's not like, I feel like, um, if I had mushed up the, my boundaries and also an expectation of him to change it, I think it wouldn't necessarily have moved at the pace at which uh, trust and conversation moved between us as father and daughter. But I also just feel like at the end of the day, the reality is we can't necessarily change anybody but ourselves and changing ourselves is damned hard to begin with. So I feel like, uh, you know, (laughs) so um, like hope, hoping and holding that out maybe is helpful. And also we can do what we can do. And I think the ba- the boundaries, like we're allowed to have those, those belong yeah. to us. Like our boundaries belong to us. Other people's choices in yes. relationship to our boundaries do not belong to us and we can't really control those. And so uh, kind of pulling those two strings apart can be really helpful um, in doing boundary setting practices or boundary setting work. So the next question we have here is coming from a Mexican family that sees feeling vulnerable as someone who's weak. What can I do to change that feeling in my quote unquote mm. vulnerable moment? This one, oh, I that would just touch me <laughs> because of my own experiences, <laughs> like feeling like a sense of shame for most of my life about like being like too sensitive or like it's weak to act like that. And I, I, what I ended up doing with that was like kind of coming up with this incorrect, um, but sometimes felt helpful belief that like what about me that was feminine was like bad. And I needed to try and act more like the men in my life and never be vulnerable in order to be safe or strong. Um, And why I don't think that was accurate is that I don't think men uh, cis men um, or male-identified people in general are safer under heteropatriarchy. I think violence gets expressed and deployed against them in different ways, um, but they're not safer. Nobody's safe. <laughs> um, but I feel like that idea of like um, right. vulnerability being a, a fundamentally like an expression of weakness, like it does make a lot of sense why we might have gotten there, you know, given the realities of cis heteropatriarchy or colonization or migration or all these things, right. Where it's like, Oh, to like, um, the ability to be like impacted, um, that it, it might not, that 
the ability to be impacted in conditions which we're constantly experiencing negative impacts, that it would make sense that we might get to a point where it's like, oh, well, maybe it's the ability to be impacted that's bad rather than the forces that are impacting us are the things that are wrong. Does that make sense? Like, really, I'm, I think about like vulnerability as partially the Im- ability to be impacted in our feelings or our bodies, but also the vulnerability that we, that's, you know, the, that comes from needing things or needing other people. And that inside of really violent structures mm-hmm. or traumatic experiences or oppression, like um, being denied our needs so many times or being told that our needs are wrong or bad or unworthy, mm-hmm. that we might then say, oh, it's actually the, the wrong thing is to need the need rather than the, the systems that deny my right to get my needs met. And so I, I try to switch it over for myself um, into like looking at vulnerability. I feel like I'm going to get all emo here. So there's some vulnerability for you right now. Like vulnerability as like <laughs> an evidence of yes. aliveness and like that interdependence is so mm. uh, resonant with like all the life there is around us, right? Like as a child of Ochun, I love going to the river the river is like my church, right? That you can see mm-hmm. all of these examples of like, look at these, all these different forms of life that are really clear about the ways that they need each other. Like these trees need to hold up the banks of the dirt so the water can move and doesn't get filled with sludge. But they also derive water from being in proximity to the river that allows them to live. And then all the animals that live in the trees and just like the ways that interdependence and the ability to be impacted is like an expression of life. And so I feel like there's something that's like helpful for me in trying to undo all the shame that I have associated with vulnerability as weak as like when I allow myself to be impacted or when I feel for my own needs and how those needs are connected to others, that like I'm actually in more resonance with the living world. And how good that's like so amazing and beautiful to feel in resonance with life around us and how much work does capitalism do to try and isolate us from what it means to be alive and be alive with each other so sometimes when i'm like at my like girl you really gotta stop whooping on yourself for for feeling shame around vulnerability or seeing it as weak as like okay well today i can see it as an anti-capitalist intervention of the spirit right and like really feel for (laughs) what land and spirit is Mm. pointing to as like this is the way towards life and and continuing on that, yeah. like this idea of like, that it's not just a good idea. Like the river is not like, here's my good idea, interdependence, right? It's not like positing that as like an approach. It's like literally demonstrating to us the necessity of being vulnerable and connected with each other um, as a means towards life. So maybe I feel a sense of vulnerability uh, because I have a big big crush on someone or because I'm going out for, uh, you know, an opportunity that's really scary to me or whatever. I'm revealing myself in some type of way, my longings. Um, 
I need to have a sense of how my body might try to shut that down because it's afraid of weakness. So, oh, like I feel like, oh my God, I love this person. Mm-hmm. I have a big crush on them. Oh, here goes my body like getting hella tight in my chest <laughs> and kind of like caving in my gaze and my eyes getting like super pointy because I'm trying to like block out the like gushy, <laughs> gushy, smushy, tender feelings of love. And mm-hmm. And so I feel like in mm-hmm. in this question, there's an opportunity to be like, okay, we can know sort of how we ended up here, but also how do I in particular um, try to armor against weakness and vulnerability and get really curious around how we do that and then try and get support or connected with other things to practice when we start to feel vulnerable so that we can continue to be in congruency with life. And don't forget, Bellia's words, vulnerability is an anti-capitalist <laughs> spirit intervention, <laughs> which is my favorite. I love it. And I feel like at some point, this like all the ideas I have now for upcoming episodes with you, it's like, ooh, then we like and talk oh, about God. intimacy, right? Because I feel like vulner- if you got vulnerability down, you sure as hell cannot do intimacy. So when you were talking mm-hmm. about the river, like I just thought about intimacy and whether it's the river whether it's a human or whether it's you know an animal or whatever it's like if we can't lean into vulnerability then intimacy is shot and so can we feel intimacy in the way that we would want to if we can't allow ourselves into that aliveness that vulnerability is almost like the path, mm-hmm. you know, to it. And so, but anyway, that's for the next <laughs> conversation we're having. Um, and then I have one last question from one of the folks in Louisville. What is your advice on how to close a toxic chapter in your life that at the same time was filled mm-hmm. with hope for and joy through a fake mm-hmm. illusion? So before we get to that, I just want to say that when you said the word intimacy, my butt cheeks like super clenched. <laughs> And so I wanted to honor my body and system for trying to protect me from the vulnerability and intimacy and uh, <laughs> intimacy and vulnerability are like super what I long for. So I'm going to try and unclench while I talk about this next one. I really appreciated this question because I think it it spoke to the contradiction of like how to be clear that we need to end something and still know that there was things that felt good inside of it. And so what I want to center, I think is really important that I learned a lot about from the anti-domestic violence movement organizing is that like, it's not wrong or bad or shameful to have shared hope or joy or love or all these beautiful experiences with somebody who also hurt you. I think one of the ways that shame can really come up in these types of situations is where people are like, damn, like I'm embarrassed or I'm wrong or I'm bad because I stayed in there too long and everybody told me about this fool and I also knew and blah, 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 blah. And like, I just, I really, I appreciate the ways it's been articulated to me by people who do DV work where it's like, yeah, they, there's a person that they love and they're like, what if I could have all that love or that you know, laughter or whatever with them. And they, and they didn't hit me or they didn't tell me terrible things about myself or they didn't like gaslight me or all those things. Right. So like, I, I just want to really appreciate like this thing of like, it's not 
ever wrong or bad to need or want love from somebody or to need or want to experience joy or hope with somebody. The the work that we got to do sometimes is like getting ever more skillful or discerning about assessing if we'll be able to consistently experience it with that particular person in a way that doesn't also demand for us to sacrifice our safety or dignity or belonging, right? So like, it's like, oh, this person has caused a lot of harm and I have really beautiful memories with them sometimes. And I have enough information and data based on our our uh, relationship thus far that I know that there's pretty likely they're probably going to continue to cause the harm. And so that's also true, but it doesn't mean yeah. that I suck for feeling a sense of love for them or for wanting love from them. And I, I just think that that's how important. And I really love that question of being like, um, how do I do that? And so I think there's, you know, lots of different ways that I've seen available through somatic practice, but also just in general, like getting a sense of um, one, like, how do I uh, close this out in a way that dignifies all of that? So for me, I think like ritual or ceremony can be really helpful and it doesn't have to be tied to any particular spiritual practice, but like things like it could be like limpias or like burning things or like ways to be like, here's all the layers of the things that we felt and shared together. And here is me feeling my goodbye or feeling my letting go. Right. Um, and no, again, nobody has to be bad in that. It's just a, making and taking an action or making a choice based on a clear assessment that like, there's no way I can continue to get all of this sweet, you know, tender things without also knowing that I will very likely probably get these very spiky, harmful, harsh things. And I don't want those anymore. And so all of those things together, I'm going to really be in full alignment to say goodbye to and feel the grief for losing some of those and maybe feel some freedom in getting away from some other parts of those. Um, and so I maybe check in with a friend and see if there's like a ritual or a ceremony that you mm -hmm. can create to be able to do that and have that be witnessed and seeing if there's people in your network who will be able to hold the complexity inside of that to be with you in that because I think otherwise the danger is we can flip back and forth in between being like they're not so bad it's okay I'm gonna go back or they're shitty and terrible and I'm shitty and terrible because I love them thank you so much for engaging in some of these questions that I know where we were long overdue on and people were really engaging on and there's so much to pull from the last two conversations that we had around how to be in conflict, how to relate to ourselves in it, how to relate to others from connection to staying in relationship, to being self-aware, to shame, vulnerability, to the peace on um, accountability without punishment and without shame mm -hmm. and to apologies and, and then the boundaries piece, which we just covered, I think in different ways. So I just want to appreciate you for, all your work and then also all of the things that you have done that have kind of brought mm -hmm. you to this place of so much wisdom around conflict and, and transformation mm -hmm. and to all your teachers and your elders and your ancestors for this conversation. And I'm excited for, for it to drop and to see 
will sort of comes back from folks and um, hope that everybody got as much from it as I did. I know I've already put a lot of it into practice. Mm. Thank you. And thank you definitely, as you said, to my spirits and my ancestors and my elders and all the people I've learned from to be able to contribute to this conversation. And any of the good stuff definitely came from them and any of the mistakes, uh, I'm going to own them. <laughs> Again, thank you so much, Belia, for being on with us. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Pochas Coronado, edited by Rafael Maya. Our music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at La Cura Podcast. Baba la wo.